Well, good morning. Welcome to Kirkman Community Church and week 29 of our Believe series as we unpack what it means to live out the story of the Bible to become like Jesus. In our 30-week journey, we spent 10 weeks looking at what it means to think like Jesus, 10 weeks what it means to act like Jesus, and we're in the last 10 looking at what it means to be or, or become like Jesus. As we change how we think, it's supposed to affect how we act, and as your thinking and acting changes, that changes who you actually are as a person. All right? you're, you're all on a journey, every one of us. All right? In five years, you won't be the same person you are right now. So it's important that the changes that are made in your life are changes that are going to make us more like Christ and not less. And the center of this whole concept is the power and presence of God. We get the Holy Spirit at salvation. Romans 8 explains this, along with other passages of Scripture. But the point here is that without the presence and power of God, without being connected to the vine, as John 15 talks about, you and I will not become like Jesus. We won't think like him, we won't act like him, and we won't develop the characteristics and attributes that he had. So we must stay rooted and grounded in both the Son and the Scriptures and the Spirit. For us to do that requires some diligence on our part. You've got to stay with it. You've got to listen to what God says. You've got to do what God says. And of course, how do we know what He says? Well, He's so gracious and good, He's given us His Word, the revelation of God. That's what the Scriptures are. It is God who has revealed himself to mankind and has been written down and recorded in a book so that it can be passed around, and now it's digital. So really, with a little SD card, they can give it to somebody in another country, and they can stick it in their phone, and they don't even have to have a whole big paper book because it's digital now. So let's look this morning in our topic of gentleness. Gentleness. Now, I don't know about you, but I've mentioned this before. I don't really frequent fast food restaurants anymore. But when fast food is not fast food, it begins to test our patience. I remember a couple years ago, McDonald's was going through their whole renovation. You know, they were making all their McDonald's look all, you know, chick and, you know, 21st century cool and all this stuff. And um, I walked in there, and they, uh, they took my order, and then they asked for my name. And I was like, What? Since when does McDonald's ask for my name? And they wrote it down on a piece of paper there and, and stuck it there. And then I had to wait around for like 10 minutes for my food. And I was thinking, what is this? I was like, I came to McDonald's because I wanted what? Fast food. Yeah, this isn't fast food. If I want this, I can go somewhere else, right? And so anyways, this hybrid crossbreed model that you know McDonald's was transitioning into. And so I can remember being in there. Now I haven't been in a McDonald's in quite some time. But... It tests my patience. Look, I want fast food. Now, I've told you before when we studied the uh, concept of joy that when we look at the fruit of the Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Joy is an area that I've always struggled with in my life. But if I was going to pick the top two, it's quite possible gentleness would be the other one, uh, as, as you're going to see as we unpack this today. Anyone that's known me for any length of time has probably seen my not-so-gentle side 
Um, I see nodding heads. That's actually not good for me, but it does confirm what I'm saying. So this is why we all need Jesus, including me. Um, so the idea of gentleness. You know, Rick Warren says, am I understanding or am I demanding? That's, that's good for us to think about. Am I understanding or am I demanding? In fact, I listened to some of his stuff this past week, and I really had all I could do not to put about 20 of his quotes in here because he really had that, that much good stuff to say. The idea of gentleness, okay, is something that we all have to work on in our lives. But more than that, we just have to be open to letting God do the work. That's the idea of the fruit of the Spirit. God will produce the fruit if we stay connected to the vine. The problem occurs when we don't stay connected to the vine. So we have to stay connected to the vine. That's what we need to do. And so am I understanding or am I demanding? Well, if you're a demanding person, which I can be, then that means we're not being gentle. And then that's a problem. Maybe you have a bad day. Maybe someone doesn't do what you think they should or the way you think they should or when, when you think they should. Believe me. This is how my mind thinks quite often. But Jesus tells me, the Bible tells me, I need to have gentleness. So we need to grow in this particular area. I know I do, and I'm pretty sure that you do. So I want to look this morning at gentleness defined. What does it mean? Because as I've mentioned before, we often don't understand the meanings of the words in the Bible because of the 2,000-year gap with the New Testament and 4,000-plus years with Old Testament. And so when we talk about gentleness, which some translations will use the word um, meek. Now, many people think meek means weak. So the first thing we need to do is get that out of your minds. Okay, You need to write it down if you need to, to get it through your minds, that meek does not mean weak. All right, We're not talking about being weak here. But as we look at some of the scriptures today, this will probably come back to your mind, and you'll probably think, yeah, but that is weak. So see, we need to get rid of the 21st century idea and go back to where the Bible was written and look at what it really means back then. Now, I was going to take you on a long journey with that, but I'm not going to. I decided that you probably don't care about the long journey. You just want the answer. So Paul <coughs> existed not in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is he existed in a cultural context. So Paul uses words that existed in his time, period, and he used words that the people understood. Now, he also had a little bit of a habit of making up some new words, all right? He does that in the Bible. So if you ever want to make up a new word, I've done it once or twice, and I say, hey, the Apostle Paul did it, so, you know. People have to make up words, right? That's how you get new words in the dictionary. But gentleness... It's not this idea of weakness. The idea of gentleness has to do with several images, but one of them is very prominent in the time period of the Old Testament, and that is of a ruler who gives mercy or leniency instead of the full sentence that should be imposed. Now, what this means is if you're a judge or a king or a ruler, okay, and somebody commits a crime, and the penalty should be, let's say, death, then... You would be showing them gentleness if you didn't give them the death penalty. Are you all with me on this? Mm -hmm. So the penalty really is death. So justice to be served, they could have the death penalty. But if you show gentleness, it would be anything less than the death penalty. A lot of gentleness would be not even going to prison, maybe. That is where the idea comes from throughout the Old Testament. 
Now, we can think about this, and we can think about God. So God is the judge of the universe. He is the king. He is the ruler. And every one of you and I are guilty. We deserve punishment. And so God shows gentleness or mercy in the sense that he doesn't do what to us? Kill us. That instead, he offers a way through Jesus Christ that we could actually be reconciled back to him. Now, the just thing to do, the right thing to do, would be that he would go ahead and give us the death penalty, because that's what we deserve. But a judge and a ruler and a king can also show gentleness. In fact, if you read the writings back in the time period of Aristotle and Plato, etc., you will find that they regularly said that any kind of ruler who has no gentleness is not a good ruler at all. But actually, a good ruler is one who pairs the idea of justice, you can't just let murderers run around, right, with gentleness. If there's no gentleness, it's horrible, is what they're saying. In order to understand and live in a society, we have to have gentleness that we show to each other. This is where the idea of clemency comes from, okay? Now, clemency, as I'll explain in just a second, is when someone who has been in prison is pardoned and they're let out. This actually happens on a regular basis. You might not know that. But the Constitution actually states, quote, executive clemency may take several forms, including pardon, uh, commutation of sentences, remission of fines or restitutions, and reprieve. In other words, the Constitution, you might not know this either, but the Constitution of the United States says that the president has the right and should, I guess, from time to time, grant people pardons that are in prison and let them out. That's clemency. That's the idea of gentleness. A ruler, we don't have a king, but we do have like a ruler kind of, right? The president. That he is the executive, so he can make a decision. Now, this actually happens. President Obama, just a month or so ago, pardoned dozens and dozens of people. In fact, President Obama has um, pardoned more people than I think it's the previous seven presidents combined. President Obama believes that we have too many people in prison and too many are in there for offenses that really they should have been let out a long time ago. I was reading a story as I was researching this. There is a guy who went to prison a long time ago, back in the 70s, and it was for marijuana. And he wasn't even like the top dog. He wasn't the kingpin. In fact, the other people that went to prison with him the leader of the group and all these other people, they've already been released. This guy is still in prison. I think he's 84. And so now he's slipping through the cracks, I guess, with Obama's pardoning system. But my point is this, that there's people that are pardoned. Obama has pardoned hundreds of them. But there's thousands who have asked for it. Now, I'm not here to say who should or shouldn't be pardoned this morning. I'm simply here to say that's what the idea of gentleness has to do with, that you let them out. Now, I personally do think that an 84-year-old guy that went to prison decades ago because he had some marijuana um, probably should be let out. You know, he's 84. I think he's more than paid uh, his time. So, anyway. The idea of pardon and gentleness go hand in hand, and that's actually where this whole idea comes from. Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers <coughs> said that uh, 
Clemency exists for reasons of humanity and good policy and to provide easy access to exceptions. In other words, there's exceptions to the rule. Sometimes they shouldn't go to prison. You know, they make these rules. In our country, we go through cycles. Okay, so we have um, times where there's a lot of crime, and so people will say, okay, we need to be hard on crime, and that means automatic sentencing. So if you do this crime, you automatically go to prison, and sometimes they, they make these laws where the judge can't decide how much time you get. It's called mandatory minimum sentencing. And so you do a crime, a, maybe it's a, a drug crime, okay? So you're caught with some drugs, and there's a mandatory minimum. So the judge can't say, well, you've never been in trouble before, so I'm just going to give you probation, and you know, we want you to clean up your life a little bit. He can't do that because it's a mandatory minimum. He has to send them to prison. And so people like that end up in prison, and they spend however much time. Now, some of those laws, they get changed later. And so that's why some of these people, they get pardoned, because let's say the mandatory minimum was 10 years, all right? And then we decided five years later, that's kind of harsh. And so we changed it. Well, this guy's already in there. He spent five years. He's got five more. So see, he can apply for a pardon, which takes time. Um, but maybe he'll get a pardon for that. So Alexander Hamilton and back in the beginning of our country, they latched onto this idea too. Humanity and good policy is not a legal concept. It's why George Washington pardoned the Whiskey Rebellion participants. Franklin Roosevelt gave clemency to people convicted of alcohol offenses during Prohibition. JFK commuted the mandatory minimum sentences of many drug offenders. People are let out every year. Are you all with me? Gentleness. That's what it is. A pardon is related to gentleness. Well, <clears throat> gentleness is also an image of God's ultimate subversive power that undercuts the power structures of this world. This is seen when Jesus describes himself as gentle and humble in heart. He says his yoke is easy, his burden is light in Matthew eleven twenty nine. James, in much the same way, speaks of wisdom that's from above as being gentle and peaceable. So if, if your wisdom is not gentle and peaceable, that means it's not from above. And if it's not from above, then it's from below. below. And you don't want it from below because that's not the domain and the characteristic of God, right? So... The idea is also seen in the parable of the unmerciful or unforgiving servant that you'll find in Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Write that down. You can read it this week. Matthew 18, 21 to 35. Most of you probably know it. This guy owed a lot of money. He gets forgiven of his debt, and he goes out, and he doesn't show any mercy to a guy that owes him a little bit. Well, if you put yourself in, let's say, the king's position, and someone owes you a million dollars, you don't have to forgive him the debt, do you? No, that's mercy or to go with what we're discussing today, that's gentleness. See, you don't think about gentleness that way. You don't think about it as pardoning. You don't think about it as forgiving things or mercy. <coughs> so, this regularly happens. To be gentle is the opposite of being bold, 1 Corinthians 10.1. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Or quarrelsome in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. Or jealous or ambitious in James chapter 3 and in James chapter 1. So the people that we encounter in Scripture... Now, they have moments. This is where the Bible doesn't try to cover up everything, all right? The people in the Bible have great moments, and they have bad moments, all right? And they're both there in the Bible. And we'll talk about some of those in a moment as well. But these people, like Moses, like Paul, all right? And even Jesus, if you don't understand the proper context, you might think. See, Jesus, you think he was gentle? 
Well, of course, he was God, right? So he's got to be, because gentleness is a characteristic of God, right? But how about that day when he walked into that temple, and he made a whip and flipped over the money changers' tables and then whipped the people out? Does that sound gentle? Yeah. <laughs> now, come on. In, in our thinking, that doesn't sound gentle, all right? So this is where you've got to reconcile and wrestle with what the Bible says and put these things together. How can Jesus be gentle and mild? I just quoted that from a verse, right, in Matthew. How can his yoke be gentle or light, right? While at the same time, he's flipping money changers tables and using a whip to drive people out of the, the temple complex. <clears throat> Gentleness can be assertive, but you don't assert yourself. You can be strong and assertive, yet gentle if you leverage your power not to assert yourself, but to promote the cause of God or the needy in particular. The cause of the needy throughout the Old Testament and the Intertestament times is connected with this idea of gentleness also. Gentleness is maintaining peace and patience in the midst of pelting provocations, says Martin Collins. Let me say that again because it's pretty good. Gentleness is maintaining peace and patience in the midst of pelting provocations. What does that mean? That means people are throwing stuff at you all the time. Think of someone getting stoned. Or it could be verbal stoning, okay? So they're throwing stuff at you all the time. And you, instead of retaliating, you have what? Peace and patience. Yeah, you got to have patience with gentleness. Because sometimes people are a little bit crazy, right? Yeah, so gentleness and peace, they go a little bit together as well. Gentleness is a conscious decision to temper one's knowledge, skills, authority, or power with kindness and compassion. Marianne Froklich says, gentleness does not refer to what we do, but how we do it. She also says, gentleness does not refer to what we know, but how we share that knowledge. In other words, it's that pairing of telling the truth in love. The question isn't how strong we are, but how we use our strength. How do you use your strength? So let's look at the scriptures, okay? Let's look at gentleness demonstrated, okay? Gentleness demonstrated in the scriptures, all right? This is how we find out what God is like. This is how we find out how we're supposed to live our lives. What has been revealed to us, okay? You know, the Constitution isn't revealed from God, all right? So that's nice. It helps us understand the context a little bit here, but we need to dive into what the Bible says. That's what's inspired. So gentleness demonstrated by God. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 36, it says... You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your help exalts me. What we see here is that God's help, okay? That's the phrase that we're, we're keying in on for this part. His help exalts me. What has God done? Because of God's love and mercy, etc., other characteristics, okay, that he has, all right? He has come, and not only does he protect the word shield there, but the help from God lifts me up, all right? Now, this is tied in with what I mentioned a moment ago, that a lot of times this idea of gentleness is connected with people of a lowly stature in society, poor people, for instance. And here, God says he lifts people up. In Psalm 18, verse 35, says, you have given me the shield of your salvation, your right hand upholds me, and your humility... What word do you think that humility is? It's a gentleness word, okay? It exalts me. So again, what we have 
is that God is a shield of salvation. He's strong, right? He's a protector. But his right hand, that's his power, okay, upholds me. His humility, his gentleness exalts. That means lifts up. So let's get a word picture in our minds. So we're, we have a picture that is of someone that's lowly. They're, they're down here. And God's gentleness lifts them up. It's not his harshness. It's not his justice. It's not his judgment. It's his what? It's his gentleness. So what does gentleness do? We see that gentleness helps lift people up. That's what God's doing with his gentleness. He's lifting them up. He's not stepping on them, right? He's not, they're already down. He's got his foot on their throat. Okay, if you go look at old uh, paintings and reliefs from the Assyrians and the Babylonian time period, etc., when someone conquers, what you find is they put their foot on their throat. Why? Because that's saying that they're, they're down, right? Kick them when they're down, right? That's saying that I have control over them. What we see here is God's gentleness is that he's picking up the lowly person, right? In Isaiah 40, verse 11, it says he protects his flock like a shepherd. So first, in all three of these verses, you've noticed that there's a protection aspect, okay? And then it says he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. And he, what? What's the next word? He... He gently leads those that are nursing. So again, lambs, sheep. Okay, so you have these gentle animals. That's what they're kind of known for, right? And nursing ones, so, so we got young ones, right? So how, how do you treat young and babies and infants with what? Gentleness. With gentleness, right? Now, you might come in from one of the rooms in your house and toss your stuffed animal on the couch but you don't come in the door and toss the baby on the couch right because that wouldn't be gentle and the baby is a baby and needs care gentle love etc right so are you with me on this all right so this is what we see this is just three verses that show that god is gentle all right with his people now, let's look at Moses, okay? Gentleness demonstrated by Moses. Other than Jesus, okay, Moses is an individual who is explicitly said in Scripture that he is meek or gentle, okay? The two people are Moses and Jesus. The Bible clearly says this person. Now, it doesn't mean no one else is meek. It just says that with these people, they have specific things said about them. In fact, as we'll see, Moses is said to be the most humble man more than any on the face of the earth in Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. And so that is a pretty high accolade. What if someone said, you are the most gentle person in the world? Nope. That would not be true. That would not be true. <laughs> You're probably right, right? But that would be a really high honor, right? Yeah. So that's what the scripture says about Moses, all right? Now, what was it about Moses? In Psalm 25, 9, we read that he leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches them his way. Now, as the psalmist is, is writing, okay, we, we see that God, again, is, is gentle. He leads them along, okay? And what does Moses do with God? How's their relationship? Moses is teachable. Moses listens to what God tells him. Moses has a, a gentle spirit. A, a lowly spirit. Moses doesn't try to put himself up over everybody. In fact, if you recall, when God called Moses, what did Moses say? 
Not me. Pick someone else. Right? Three times. Actually, God had to get a little bit upset with him. He said, Moses, I picked you. You're going. You want some help? I'll send your brother with you. But you're going. I picked you. Right? So Moses didn't just try to put himself there. Here's what we do in our culture. Oh, I want to be the boss. I want to be the leader. I want to be in charge. And what, what is Jesus saying? What is God saying? What do we have from Moses? Jesus has other examples where he says, don't try to be the guy up at the front of the table by the boss man. No, no, no. Take the lowly position. We're like, no, I don't want that. That's the problem. Because we're all about us. You're all about you. And God says we've got to be all about him. 1 Peter 3, 4, we read that those who are precious in God's sight are gentle and meek. 1 Peter 3, 4, it should consist of what is inside the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is very valuable in God's eyes. Valuable to God is this gentle spirit. This is what Moses has, okay? But how is it that he has this? Because we know some of the other things about Moses. Here's what we know. We know that in Exodus, Moses kills a man. He saw an Egyptian okay, that was roughing up one of the Hebrew people, and so he went and killed him. Okay? He murdered the guy. We know that elsewhere in Scripture, Moses gets upset as well, multiple times. That was Exodus chapter 2, verse 12, by the way, if you want the reference on him killing the Egyptian. In Exodus chapter 32, 19, he got angry when he came down from Mount Sinai. Now picture this. The Ten Commandments are in his hand. He just spent 40 days and 40 nights with God. He comes down, and he sees the people having a very bad party. That's what was going on. Okay? It was a bad party. He was so angry, he broke the tablets that the commandments were written on, and he had to go back up and get them done again. Moses got angry. He didn't just get angry. I don't know what you've ever broken. A window, a vase, a, a picture, a bed, I don't know. Moses broke the Ten Commandments. Okay? The pieces of stone that God had written on. Think about that. How many sets are there? Well, yes, you're right, okay? But that's it, okay? One, one for the people, one for God, right? That's it in the whole world, right? How much is a car worth if there's only one or two of them in the world? Lots, right? Lots, okay? If there's only two of the cars in the whole world, identical matching twins, right? Yeah, so here we are. Moses has, has the two, right? Identical matching twins. And what's he doing with the only two in the whole universe? He breaks them. Why? Because he got angry. Because he got angry. Then what do we see? That's not the only time. In Numbers chapter 20, verse 11, God told Moses to speak to the rock and water would come out. Moses got angry, and he struck the rock twice. This caused Moses to not be able to go into the promised land, his anger. Yet, Moses is said to be the what man? The gentlest, the meekest man. Yet, he's got some anger. So how does that fit together that Moses is the meekest man? Well, Let's, let's look at a passage. Now, this is not going to be up on the screen, but you all have Bibles on your tables, okay? So if you want to look with me at uh, Numbers chapter 12, all right? And I'm going to show you an example of where this comes from. How is it that Moses can be called uh, the meekest man? Because this is something that we have to understand because, again, 
If I quit right now, you'd walk out of here, and if I asked you tomorrow about meekness or gentleness, you would probably still think it meant weak. But in Numbers chapter 12, it says, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because of the Cushite woman he married. You see, race issues isn't something new. Moses' brother and sister didn't like who he had married. She's from another people. What'd you marry her for? Whatever they said, right? Verse 2. They said, does the Lord speak only through Moses? Does he not also speak through us? So here what we have is we have Aaron and Miriam that they want to talk like Moses. They want to be in charge. But who did God call to be in charge? Moses, exactly. And so here they are criticizing him. Oh, God speaks through us too. It's not just Moses. It wasn't enough for them to be number two or three. They wanted to be number one. Who picks number one? God. God. So the Lord heard it because he hears everything. Verse three, Moses was a very humble man, more so than any man on the face of the earth. There's the verse. Now, listen, the Bible's not accidental on how it sets stuff up. They tell you first that um, Aaron... And Miriam are upset over who Moses married. And then they tell you that Aaron and Miriam uh, want to be in first place instead of Moses. And then they tell you, God heard it, and then they tell you Moses is the most humble or gentlest man. Suddenly, verse 4, the Lord says to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them went out, and the Lord descended in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent, and he summoned Aaron and Miriam. And when the two of them came forward, he said, Listen to what I say. If there's a prophet among you from the Lord, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so would my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my household. I speak with him directly, openly, not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. So why are you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The Lord's anger burned against them, and he left. As the cloud moved away from the tent, Miriam's skin suddenly became diseased, as white as snow, leprosy. When Aaron turned toward her, he saw that she was diseased and said to Moses, My Lord, please don't hold against us this sin we have so foolishly committed. Please don't let her be like a dead baby whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, God, please heal her. The Lord answered Moses, If her father had merely spit in her face, wouldn't she remain in disgrace for seven days? Let her be confined outside the camp for seven days. After that, she may be brought back in. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move until Miriam was brought back in. And after that, the people set out from Hazaroth and came to the wilderness of Paran. Now, here's the deal. What did Moses do when his own brother and sister, the people closest to him, rose up against him. Did he fight back? No. no. Did he try to get him killed? No. Instead, he actually interceded to God on their behalf and asked God to be gentle and merciful to them. See, this is why Moses is called the meekest man. Moses didn't try to retaliate. Instead, Moses wanted gentleness for them. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 30 through 33, it says, The following day Moses said to the people, You have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. Now, can Moses atone for the people's sin? No. Only Jesus can. 
But Moses is again trying to do what? He's interceding for the people. If you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers, Exodus and Numbers uh, specifically, you will see that Moses does two things. One, he gets very upset with the people. We've already talked about it. He gets angry with them. He gets very frustrated with them. You'll also see that he intercedes for them, and he wants God to be gentle to them. He says, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, get this, please erase me from the book that you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, I will erase whoever has sinned against me from my book. In other words, them, not you. Moses is saying, he's putting his life on the line. He's saying, God, don't cast off all these people. You could take me out instead. Now think about that. That is gentleness. This is just after Moses came down. In his anger, he broke the commandments. Moses is ready to put his life on the line for him. Yes, Stanley. Um, well, this happens multiple times. It's not just his brother and sister. In that instance, it is his brother and sister. But others come also. So. Moses, in Numbers 14, 13 to 16, it says, he replies to the Lord, The Egyptians will hear about it, for by your strength you brought up this people from them. They will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people. How you, Lord, are seen face to face. How your cloud stands over them. And how you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. If you kill this people with a single blow, the nations that have heard of your fame will declare, since the Lord wasn't able to bring his people into the land, he swore to give them. He has slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now, this is after the 12 spies have come back. Ten of them said, oh, we can't do it. Two of them said, we can do it. And God was angry and was going to send poisonous snakes to kill him. And Moses says, God, let's not do that. In other words, he wants God to have what on them? Gentleness, Gentleness mercy. Moses interceding for the people again. Now, Stanley brought up a good point about does he always respond this way? Well, with Korah's rebellion, go. Moses did pray, and God opened up the earth and swallowed him alive. What was this about? Well, it was about vindicating Moses' leadership again. And Moses isn't the one that opened up the earth. Who did? God. God did it. So Moses doesn't really vindicate himself so much. Moses doesn't really defend himself or really reject his enemy. We repeatedly see that he's interceding for the people against him. He's interceding for his enemy. He's asking for gentleness. Now, this is also demonstrated by David. Let's watch this quick video. This shows the story about David and, and uh, Nabal and uh, Abigail and see about the gentleness and the not-so-gentleness in this video. During the time that David was on the run from King Saul, 
he and his men were living in the desert. They came upon a group of shepherds who were returning the sheep to their owners, a wealthy couple named Nabal and Abigail. David and his men offered to provide protection for the shepherds as they traveled. After the shepherds had taken the sheep back to Nabal and Abigail, David heard that it was time for the sheep to be sheared. So David sent a group of his men to Nabal and Abigail's home. There, David's men asked Nabal to help provide whatever he could for David and his men. But Nabal, who was mean in all of his dealings, treated David's men rudely. Who is this David, he asked. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? So David's men turned around and went back to David in the desert, telling him how Nabal had treated them. David became so angry that he gathered up 400 armed men and set out towards Nabal's home. David was intent on killing Nabal and any other men living in his home. But Nabal's wife, Abigail, received word from one of her servants that her husband had treated David's men poorly and that David was on his way to their home. Abigail and her servants quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, containers of wine, sheep, roasted grain, and hundreds of cakes made of raisins and figs, and loaded it all on donkeys. She then set out with her servants to meet David on his way. As they rolled through a mountain ravine leading to her home, she saw David and his men. Quickly, Abigail got off her donkey and bowed down at David's feet. Please pay no attention to that man, Nabal, she said to David. He's just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. Then she presented David with all of the gifts she and her servants had brought on the donkeys. Abigail's gentleness and the gifts she presented eased David's anger. David said to her, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day. David then accepted Abigail's gifts, saying, Go in peace. Alright, so in this brief story that we find in the scriptures, uh, David and his men, because of Saul, are traveling around and they're kind of in hiding and different things, his, his bag of this band of uh, ragamuffins there. And um, one of the things they're doing is they actually provided protection for these shepherds. Now, remember, this fits in because our shepherds, they have a higher or low position. They have a low position. So these shepherds, okay, basically they're taking care of Nabal and Abigail's sheep. All right? So Nabal and Abigail are very rich, and they pay someone, the shepherds, uh, to take care of the sheep for them, right? Now, but if you had a bunch of sheep and you're out in the wilderness, what might someone else want to do? Kill them or take them. Steal some sheep, right? There were thieves back then. And so David provided protection for them. Now, because David had done that, he went, sent some men to Nabal and asked if he could give. He didn't demand a certain amount. It says, it says he asked, just, what do you have that you could help us? The men are hungry. And Nabal was what kind of a man? 
He was foolish and harsh. Harsh is the opposite of gentle. So Nabal was not a gentle man. Now, here we see David gets very upset, right? So we see the anger come into the picture. And then, who intercedes and saves the day? Abigail, Abigail does. Okay, look at Proverbs 15, 1 says, A gentle answer turns away anger, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. Now, you don't realize how powerful your words are. There's another scripture in the Bible that says that a, a gentle word is, is stronger, um, strong enough to break bones. That seems weird. Right? You need something harsh to break something, right? No, no, that's not what the scripture says. A gentle answer turns away anger. A harsh word stirs up wrath. So what did Abigail's gentle answer do? She turned away David's 400 men from slaughtering a guy. And his men, probably. Abigail ends up becoming one of David's wives. Nabal dies just a few days later. God kills him. You see, when the Bible says not to take vengeance upon yourself, don't be the avenger, give place for God to do the avenging. What did God do to Nabal? God took care of Nabal. Not too much longer later. Within a few weeks or so, he was dead. David didn't kill him, though. God took care of him. Same thing. Remember we talked a few weeks ago how David would not kill Saul. What did God do eventually? He took care of Saul. David didn't do it. Right? Yes. Nope. Um, he killed him because he was a fool and he was harsh. Well, God takes everybody's life, if you think about it. Right? Right. You're given a certain amount of time to live, right? And who determines that? God. So God takes everybody's life. He gives life and he takes life, right? He's the giver and taker of life, right? Right. So what you're really asking is about the timetable and how he did it. All right? That's really what you're saying. All right? So you have one little story. But what you're told in that story is that Nabal was a foolish man and he was a harsh man. So how did he live his life? Harshly and foolishly, right? right? And not in line with God. So he was not a godly man. That's what the story is telling us. So who judged the godly man? God judged the godly man because who is the judge of all men? God is. And so what Abigail in her wisdom and her soft answer did is she helped David... Not make, if you go back and read the scripture, you'll see that it says that she helped David actually, she prevented him, helped prevent him from sinning and going and avenging it himself. Instead, God took care of it. All right? Because the gentle answer turns away anger and a harsh word stirs up wrath. 1 Kings 12, 14, <clears throat> we see, it says, My father uh, made your yoke heavy. But I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline with barbed whips. Now, you have to know the story to know what's going on. Solomon has died. You've got Rehoboam, his son, coming on the throne. Rehoboam is inexperienced and young and doesn't know what it means to be a leader. He's not wise like Solomon or David. He hasn't had the experience. And so he goes to a group of older men, the elders, and says, what should I do? And they say, listen, the people are tired and wore out. You need some gentleness. You need to back off. Because I'll think about it. 
He goes to his buddies, and his buddies say, whatever, be twice as hard as your dad was. Take what you want, do what you want. Well, he decides to listen to his buddies. This splits the kingdom, causes wars. This was a foolish thing to do. So Rehoboam, this on the screen, does that look gentle to you? No. No. Yeah, my father whipped him. Yeah, I'll whip him too. I'll add barbs to it. What does that mean? That means let's put metal in the whips. Okay, so think about getting whipped with leather. Okay, now think about getting whipped with leather that's got spikes in it. It's worse, right? He's saying, I'm going to make it even worse on him. All right, I will add to your yoke. Remember how we talked earlier that Jesus said his yoke is light? We'll probably come back to that in a minute. But Jesus says his yoke is light. What's Rehoboam doing? He's making a heavy yoke. He's making a heavy burden for the people. The opposite. So this attitude by Rehoboam is the exact attitude of everything else we've seen. And it's the opposite. It's the opposite of what we see demonstrated by Jesus. In fact, interestingly enough, some of the same terminology regarding yoke is used of Jesus. But notice the glaring difference in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. It says, all of you take up my yoke, Jesus says. Not, not Rehoboam's yoke, Jesus' yoke. And learn from me because I am, what's the next word? Gentle. Gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for yourselves. The exact opposite of Rehoboam. So you want to know what kind of king you want or what kind of king King Jesus is? The opposite of Rehoboam. In Zechariah 9.9, it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, why am I putting this up here? Because when Matthew writes Matthew 11.29, what do you think he has in the back of his mind? Zechariah 9.9, that's where it comes from. So when Jesus is said to be humble and to be meek and to be gentle... That's not a New Testament thing. That's actually from the Old Testament about the kind of a king and ruler you're supposed to have. Remember what we said? In the Old Testament, the original idea behind this idea of gentleness is instead of sending you to prison or the death penalty, that the king would do what? Give you gentleness and a pardon or leniency of some sort. Not only does Jesus claim gentleness for himself, he urges all who are burdened, who are dumped on, who are exhausted from trying to please everyone. To come to him, to come under his authority, under his leadership, to let him be their teacher, because Jesus' teaching won't wear you out. And the reason it won't wear you out is because it's not about rules. It's about relationships. It's not so much about laws as it is about love. Okay, if you're not writing anything down, this is what you should write down. Okay, it's not about rules. It's about relationships it's not about laws, it's about love. You got to get this. It's not about rules, it's about relationships. It's not about laws, it's about love. Does that mean there are no rules? No. Does it mean there are no laws? No. It means that the motive is different. Let me connect the dots for you. So you murdered somebody. The penalty is death. The law says you must die. But Jesus in his love says he dies in your place. So do you want the law or do you want the love? The rule says you die. But the relationship with Jesus says you live. Do you want the rule or the relationship? Exactly. 
It's also demonstrated, gentleness is demonstrated by the Apostle Paul. In Romans chapter 9, it says, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience is testifying to me with the Holy Spirit that I have intense sorrow, look at this, and continual anguish in my heart. I could almost wish to be cursed and cut off from the Messiah for the benefit of my brothers. That sounds like who? Now, who said what? Moses. Moses basically said the same thing in the Old Testament. He's saying, man, take me out, God, instead of them. I want my Israelite brothers and sisters that don't know you to get saved. Paul, like Moses, wants the Israelites to believe, and he's willing to go to any length to see them saved. Thus, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. He says, although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle hmm just like a what a nursing mother nurtures her own little children this understanding makes it all the more significant when paul says in second corinthians 10 1 now i paul make a personal appeal to you by the gentleness and graciousness of christ i who am humble among you in person but bold toward you when absent now i want you to look at this verse i almost preached the whole sermon just on this verse there's three words in there tying all this together. It's very, very interesting. Gentleness, graciousness, and then humble. Okay? Now, I really got starting to dig into this. I, I was just going to do this one verse, honestly. There's a 460-page book written on that one verse. No joke. Okay? So, um, it's too expensive. It's like $105. So, I was reading some of it on Google uh, Books last night. But, of course, you know, they skip some of the pages on you. But quite a bit of it's there. Anyways. You're like, how can you write that much? Listen, all the stuff we're talking about, right? I'm preaching for 40, 45 minutes or whatever. I studied for, I don't know, 8, 10 hours, right? This guy, he's got a 460-page book on the words gentle, gracious, and humble in that one verse and how, what they mean and why Paul's using them. So, gentleness. Paul demonstrates this gentleness. Like a nursing mother. He makes an appeal in gentleness. Earlier on to the Corinthians, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4.21, well, uh, What do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and the spirit of gentleness? Now understand, Paul is like a father correcting his kids. Okay, His kids keep misbehaving. They won't listen to him. They won't listen to correction. And so Paul has some pretty serious and even harsh things to say sometimes to them because they're not living according to God's love. You say God's law. Yeah, it's both. It's God's law and love. Why do you break the rules, guys? It's not why. It's not why you do it. You do it because you don't love. Yep. See, this is our problem. We don't get these connections. The reason you sin, the reason you break the rules, the reason you do what you want is because you don't love. Well, maybe I should correct that. You don't love others. You just love yourself. So mom asks you to do something, you don't want to. So now it's a question of who do you love more, yourself 
or your mom. And ultimately, God. Because God put your mom in your life and she's your authority. So it's really a love question. That's why, guys, it's not about rules. It's about relationships. relationships. It's not about rules. It's about what, boys? Relationships. Relationships. And it's not about laws. It's about love. You get that, it'll start changing this. You're not going to be gentle to people until you've got love. I could tell you to be gentle all day long. You know when you'll start being gentle? Love. You know when I'll be more gentle? When I'm more loving. So, we see it's demonstrated by all these different characters in the Bible. But we also see that gentleness is demanded in the scriptures. Gentleness is demanded. It's demanded by Jesus if you look at Matthew chapter 5, 5. So we saw the demonstrations. What, what does that mean? That means examples. We saw where it shows people doing this. Okay, But what does God say about it that you have to do? Matthew 5, 5, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. So who inherits the earth? Who gets in God's kingdom? The gentle. So this means God's people have to be gentle. gentle. So if you're not gentle, you're either not one of God's people or you're in sin. Right, Stanley? It's not about rules, it's about how do you get into heaven? Stanley? Relationship. Right? That's why relationship triumphs rules. Okay? The way into the kingdom of God and the manner of living in the kingdom of God is one of gentleness. It's also demanded in the New Testament. Now, we can unpack the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, okay? But for time's sake, we're not going to. My point is this. When Jesus preaches the greatest sermon ever preached, the most famous, the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and he says that gentleness, meekness, okay, is the characteristic of the people of God's kingdom, then that's a command. That's a demand. If you want part of God's kingdom, then you've got to have what? Exactly. And this is not on the screen, but the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, is also including gentleness. So if you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit, then you will, by default, have what in your life? Gentleness. Yeah. So look at 1 Timothy 3, 3. Okay? This is not the last verse, but we are on the wind down. Okay? 1 Timothy 3, 3. Okay? He says, don't be addicted to wine. Don't be a bully, but be gentle. gentle. So if you're not gentle, you're a bully. bully. Like, no, I'm not. You, okay, I didn't say it. It's scripture. All right? If you're not gentle, the opposite is a bully. Okay? Thus, we, here we see that gentleness is the opposite of bullying and pushing people around. So if you like to push people around, you're a bully and you're not gentle. No one likes to be a bully, right? 2 Timothy 2.25. Instructing his opponents with gentleness, this is what Paul writes to Timothy, okay, about how you teach people who oppose you. Now, 
Yesterday, some Jehovah's Witnesses came by the house. I was on the way out the front door to mow the lawn, and Jehovah's Witnesses stopped by. So I knew who they were. I could tell who they are when they rolled up, okay? There's two of them. They got their materials. They got their Bibles. They got their literature. There's a car parked out front because that's how they do it. They roll up, and four people get out, and two go here and two go there. All right, so anyways, I didn't really want to have a conversation with them. I wanted to mow the lawn. So I only had a very short conversation. I told them straight up right away, um, you know, I'm a believer in Jesus. He's God. And I purposely said that because I know they don't believe he's God. Um, and so it didn't go very, very far. And then um, they were leaving. They were down the street. And I, I remembered a um, passage that I read this past week. And um, it had to do with Jesus being God and how in the book of Corinthians, the word is, is used from an Old Testament passage speaking about God, Yahweh, and then it's applied to Jesus. This happens many times in the New Testament, actually. Um, and so what it's saying is the very same person that is God in the Old Testament is Jesus, the same God in the New Testament. Now, that's some pretty crazy stuff. So anyways, I went back, looked up the verse, and brought it out to him, and then ended up in a conversation for 20 minutes. Now, I was not as harsh as I have been sometimes. I don't know if I was as gentle as I could or should have been. So Paul is saying this, that your opponents, all right, now these people, I don't know them, right? I've never seen them before. Uh, but they are people made in whose image? God's image, all right? Now here's the deal. Are you going to win somebody over with a harsh argument? No, you're not going to win somebody over with a harsh argument. So this makes a lot of sense. You need gentleness. You need to demonstrate love. Did Jesus Christ die for them? Yes, I believe he did. So if he died for them, then I should have some love, because Jesus had love, right, for the people he died for, and to try to gently persuade them, all right? Now, I don't like arguments. I would rather just say, listen to me, and like, oh, great, I want to be a believer now, right? But that's not exactly how it goes, usually. So anyways, I don't know if we'll have another conversation or not, but we need to be gentle in that. Rick Warren says, I never get my point across by being cross. I'll say that again. I never get my point across by being cross. The word cross means what? Harsh, yes. All right. Further, he says, do I want to make a point or do I want to make a friend? See, here, here's one of our problems in evangelical Christianity. We've been taught, some of us at least, from a young age or from whenever we became, uh, became a Christian, that it's our job to convert people. That's a lie. It's not your job to convert people. Who's the converter? God. God's the converter. All right? Yes, we're commanded to make disciples, but who changed the heart? Only God can change the heart. So is us being harsh going to help them change? No. If you make a friend, though, here's what Rick Warren said. He, he talked about this. He said, if you can connect your heart with their heart, then Jesus can walk from your heart to their heart. Why don't you think about that? See, we try to win arguments. I, I've done this before. I've sat at tables, and I've, we just debated verse after verse after verse after verse, and it goes nowhere because they've got all their verses in their head, and i got all the verses I want to use in my head, and we're just bouncing back and forth like ping pong balls on all these verses. It gets nowhere. 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says, Honor the Messiah as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to give a defense an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. However, look at this. Do this with what? Love. Gentleness and respect. 
keeping your conscience clear so that when you're accused, those who denounce your Christian life will be put to shame. In other words, they can't say, that guy's a jerk. Even to his enemies, he's not a jerk. See, that's where rubber meets the road. Jesus said, love your enemies. That means be gentle towards your enemies. Peter, one of Jesus' inner three, okay, further instructs us, if we have the gentleness and meekness to hear it, regarding bosses. Look at this in 1 Peter 2.18. Okay? Household slaves submit with all fear to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. Now, a couple points I just want to highlight really quickly here. We don't have masters today. You have bosses and employers and teachers, etc., right? But picture this, first century. Peter's saying that you should submit... And then he says, whether you have a gentle master, that's the good type, or the cruel. Wow. As a Christian, you show your gentleness. Now think about this and think about everything we've talked about. Okay? If you're in the first century, okay, and if you were a slave, that means you had a master. The master's responsible for giving you food and shelter, etc., and in exchange, you work for him. But some of them were really nice, and some of them were jerks. Well, we already read some stories about some jerks today in the Bible, right? Nabal was a jerk. David was going to go kill him at one point. But Abigail intervened. Who takes care of the jerks? God takes care of the jerks, not you. And so even here, this is what, I'll just be honest with you. American Christians don't believe the scriptures. I don't know of hardly any American Christians that would read this verse and, and will agree with it. I remember having discussions with the guys I was in Bible college with many years ago even. You know, it comes up with all sorts of issues. These are people who are cruel to them. What do you think it means that they were cruel to them? They're abusing them. All right? We would call it abuse today. They would go to jail if they were prosecuted. Okay? We'd move people out of the situation. That's not what happened back then. And what Peter is saying is this. You respond in gentleness anyway. It's not just there. Look at 1 Peter 3.1. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the Christian message, they may be won over without a message by the way their wives live. What's he saying here? He's again saying the same thing. This is another crazy situation. Some men are jerks, right? Yes? Yes. Right? Some men are gentle, right? And sometimes we're both. Right? Probably not at the same time. But anyway... What is he saying? Peter issues a challenge to those married to unbelieving spouses. Being angry and resentful is not going to change them. Right? If you were married to an unbeliever, which you're not supposed to do, but in this situation it means two unbelievers, they're married, and one of them becomes a believer. Well, you can't just divorce them. God doesn't allow it. All right? If they leave you, that's another situation. But you can't just kick them out. What does he say instead? He says that what you do is you have to submit yourself and you continue to love them and demonstrate gentleness. Why? In the hopes that God will change their heart. If I'm harsh to them, is that going to help? No. What's the only way? To show them love. One second. This, this is where this idea of gentleness, we have a hard time wrapping our head around it. This is another example of gentleness. What does the harsh jerk husband deserve? Yes. Or at least some kind of 
punishment, consequence, or justice, right? <laughs> Maybe not death. Depends on what he's doing. But, okay, let's just say he does, okay? So he deserves death, Stanley, right? But what are we being told in Scripture? Do we give him death? No, we don't. That's the thing, because who's the judge? Instead, we give him what, Stanley? Yes, or in this context, the, the phrase we're using, right, is gentleness, right? So somehow he deserves that. But remember, go back to what I said in the very beginning. Gentleness is when the guy deserves the death penalty and you don't give him the death penalty, right? Yeah, go ahead. Probably. What's your question? My question is, why do you, why do you Oh, you're not allowed to. Marriage is a covenant for life. Two people become one. Goes all the way back to Genesis. God hates divorce, Malachi. You become one. You, you, you don't come undone. It's like gluing two pieces of paper together, right? Try to pull them back apart. No. <clears throat> it's, not, it's not God's plan. Yeah. I can't hear you. If you do what? If you hold on a chair for a lady, is that gentleness? That's chivalry, but um, I guess we can put it in the category, right? Yeah, Darius. Somebody died. Yeah, so you're not married anymore. They're dead. De death ends it. Death ends the marriage. If you, if, you ever, if you ever watch somebody get married, usually the vows say that they get married until what? Death do us part. In other words, until death separates us. Once death comes, you're not married anymore. Yes. Hmm? All right. All right, let's wrap this up then, okay? So all of these are related to this idea of gentleness, okay? So <clears throat> Peter tells us that whether you're dealing with a cruel boss, an unbelieving or cruel spouse, or an unbeliever in general, okay, if you look at all the different verses we looked at, all right, you are to be gentle and meek with them. Paul further demonstrates what this looks like with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, he says, If someone is caught in a wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore them with a what spirit? A gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so you won't be tempted. Okay, so if one of you is sinning, I don't come over with a, a billy club and hitch upside the head, all right? What do I do? I come over gently and deal with you, all right? Does that make sense? Are you all with me? All right? So, let me end with this, all right? A command in two verses. So, the command is to be gentle to all. All right, that's what you're to be, gentle to all. In James 3.17, it says, The wisdom from above is first pure, 
then peace-loving and gentle and compliant, full of mercy and good fruit, without favoritism and hypocrisy. If you're going to live by the wisdom of God, if you're going to live by what God wants you to do, then you're going to live by gentleness, because that's God's wisdom. And Titus 3, 2, this is the, the verse. It's on your um, little card on the table, I think. What are we supposed to do as believers? It says, slander no one, avoid fighting, and be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Okay, let's all say that last part again. Always showing gentleness to all people. One more time, everybody. Always showing gentleness to all people. Okay? Is there anybody not included in that verse? No. Everybody is included. So at the end of the day, you want one verse. We sum it all up with this. What do you do? You show it to everybody. Let's not be known for being rude. I'm from upstate New York. New Yorkers are known, especially the city ones, as being rude. But guess what? If you're in here, most of you, if not all of you, okay, are from USA. You're American, right? So Americans are known for being rude. It's not just New Yorkers. Americans are known for being rude. We need to be known for being what? Gentle. Gentle because we are of Christ. Okay? That's why. The key question today was how do we demonstrate thoughtfulness and consideration? In other words, gentleness. Philippians 4, 5 says, Let your graciousness be known to everyone, for the Lord is near. That means he's coming back soon. And so to wrap it up with our key idea, I hope we can say we are thoughtful, considerate, and calm in our dealings with others. If you can't, you need to go back to what we just looked at. Let me pray for us, and then we will move on to the next portion. Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. Most of all, we thank you for how you're gentle with us. We don't deserve for you to be gentle, but you are gentle with us. Help us, if we're a believer, that we would be gentle with others. I pray for those in here who are not believers today, that today they might realize that they are a sinner, they deserve death. They deserve eternal separation from you. That's called hell in the Bible. But instead, out of your gentleness and your love, you sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for their sins so that they could actually be brought into your family, have their sins forgiven, and out of your love, you would have a relationship with them. And instead of spending forever separated from you in hell, they could spend forever with you in a place the Bible calls heaven. Father, I pray for anybody that might be like that today, that today they would call out to you and ask for forgiveness of sins. They would ask you to save them, for you to come into their, their life, to be their Lord, their Savior, to bring the Holy Spirit, to make them a new person, that they could begin to live the life you've called them to live and demonstrate gentleness. And might the rest of us, as we see people throughout this week, choose to show them gentleness. In Christ's name, amen.